Thanks, Aaron. Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Thanks for being with us on this Daylight Savings Sunday at the early service and getting up uh, what has felt like 8 a.m. So uh, glad you're here. Uh, we are jumping into our last sermon in this series. We've been in all year in the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, and I've really enjoyed this series. I've, I've enjoyed this book. Uh, we are going to start a new series next week titled Invested a study in generosity. We're going to spend three weeks. We've never preached on generosity before, five years as a church. So I'm excited about that. Uh, we'll break that series up. It'll be three weeks, but we'll do two weeks and invested. And then we'll have our all church retreat and Irwin will preach. And then we'll finish up that series the week following. I really do hope you'll be able to, to join the all church retreat. It's going to be a great time. Irwin will be a gift uh, to us. Well, Judges, this morning, uh, it's a book, if you've been with us, you've seen it's, it's filled with some strange stories, uh, even some dark stories. Uh, and if you have been here, you've seen as the book progresses, it, it goes from bad to worse to horrific. Uh, and so a warning label to you this morning, the story that we're going to read may be one of the grossest, most horrific stories in all of the Bible. It's a long passage. I felt like I needed to read the whole chapter of Judges 19. Uh, but if, uh, just as a heads up, this is a, it's a hard story to read. Uh, I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand, and we're going to read all of Judges, chapter 19, and then the very last verse of Judges. This is God's word to us this morning. In those days there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there, and on the fourth day they uh, there they arose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. And after that, you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate both of them. When the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws close to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them in to his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? 
And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and they ate in the drink. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surround the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to them. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces. It sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Well, God, we uh, come to you with this dark passage, a heavy passage, and we pray that the light of Christ and the love of God would shine into the darkness, that you would lead us into truth, that you would lead us to understand your redemption and your renewal in our lives and in this world. I pray you would bless your word, which is living and active. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I told you, (laughs) this is a horrible story. What in the world is this doing in the Bible? What is this story doing in our Bibles? I don't know if any of you have seen the now older movie Seven, starring Brad Pitt as Detective Mills and Morgan Freeman as Detective Somerset and Kevin Spacey playing John Doe. Uh, Spoiler alert, uh, I'm about to tell you how it ends, but the movie is about 24 years old, so if you haven't seen it, it's your own fault. Uh, So the plot with this movie centers around John Doe, uh, who commits murders according to the seven deadly sins. And towards the end of the movie, there's this terrifying and extremely disturbing scene. John Doe has murdered in five of the seven ways, all except envy and wrath. And the scene is Mills and Somerset and John Doe riding together in a car to a a place that's been designated by John Doe. And as they're riding, John Doe says, I want this to go well. Somerset says, have you not done enough? And John Doe says, I'm wanting people to pay attention. And if you want people to pay attention, you can't tap them on the shoulder. You must hit them in the head with a sledgehammer. And Somerset says, in a year, nobody's going to remember this. 
Doe says, well, you, you can't see the whole act quite yet. It, it will feel surreal, but it will be real. This is every sin on every street corner. What I'm doing is showing the true face of sin. And Somerset says, do you want people to question God's existence? And Doe says, no, no, I, I want them to question their own existence. And the movie ends when this mysterious package shows up and it has the body parts of Mill's wife, played by Brad Pitt. And John Doe begins to share how he envies his life and envies his wife. And then in wrath, Mills kills Doe, completing the seven deadly sins, envy and wrath. John Doe's mission is to get people to wake up and understand the full nature of sin. He says, you cannot tap people on the shoulder. You must hit them with a sledgehammer to reveal the true face of sin. Well, Judges chapter 19 is a sledgehammer that reveals the true face of sin. You cannot read this story and not be shocked and terrified. Now, I know many people today do not like this word sin, uh, but Christian or non-Christian, we can all agree that there is something wrong with our world. Innocent people's lives are taken from them. Sex slavery runs rampant. Absent fathers, abusive relationships, church scandals, addictions and greed, and the list can go on and on and on. And the answer for the Christian of to why the, why the world is the way that it is, is sin. Now the best definition of sin in the Bible might very well be Judges 19 verse 1. In those days there was no king. This is the refrain that we've seen throughout the book of Judges. Now, 19 verse 1 doesn't say the whole phrase, but the intent of the author is that we remember the whole line. It's the line of 21 verse 25. There was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sin is living as though there is no king and doing what is right in your own eye. Without a king, it means there's no rule, there's nothing governing your life, and without no governing authority, the individual self must be the authority. The self must determine what is right or wrong, and so sin is first a desire to be in control, to govern one's own life. This was Israel and Canaan, and as I've said throughout this series, this is the reality of our culture today. Uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote a great article in January expounding on this reality titled The Morality of Selfism. And I love his subtitle, The Gospel of Saint You. The Gospel of Saint You, that is the gospel of our culture today. And when you are your own rule, when you determine what is right or wrong, it, it's extremely deceptive because we are often blind to our own issues and every one of us can justify our thoughts, our words, and our deeds if we have to. So sin is secondly deceptive and it leads to blindness. Right? Israel and Canaan, they're not running around thinking they're doing evil. They think they're doing right. So ultimately sin at its core is a posture against God. It's subtle and ingrained and natural to all of us. Now, I've got to retell this graphic story that portrays sin. Judges 19 is sin gone wild. It's life without a king, life ruled by the self, doing what is right in one's own eye. So this certain Levite was traveling and took a concubine and 
So we've got to stop right there and go, what in the world? A Levite, a priest of God, a, a leader of God's people, this is a pastor today, takes a concubine. A, a concubine is a second-class wife. She was not the object of his affection, but the object of his lustful desires. And then in verse 2, the concubine is unfaithful. And sadly, in this time in pagan culture, this type of offense was punishable by death. So she goes to her father's house. In verse 3, it says, the husband arose and he went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Now, the Levite might have loved her, but I think our passage suggests not. She's away for four months. Love would have been action before four months. So he's probably missing sex. Maybe he misses the status of having a concubine. So then he leaves his wife to go get his concubine and bring her home. He arrives at the concubine's house and the father is overly kind, right? probably because he fears the death of his daughter or any punishment that he might receive because he's been housing her for four months. So he tries to wine and dine this Levite. He tries to win him over to make up for his and his daughter's actions. And the father uses his own daughter, treats her like property, gives her back to the Levite. So after five days, they finally leave and, and they're traveling and night dawns and they need a place to stay. And the closest town is Jebus, which was a Canaanite city at the time. And so out of fear of not receiving hospitality there or being abused or robbed by Canaanites, they turned to Gibeah, which was a city of Israel. But when they get to Gibeah, verse 15, he went in, sat down in the open square of the city, and no one took him into his house to spend the night. There was no welcome. There was no hospitality by fellow Israelites. Then a man from the hill country of Ephraim sees them, and he welcomes them, tells them to come and stay with him for a night, that you don't want to stay in this town square, and we soon realize why. Verse 22, they're making their hearts merry, they're eating, they're drinking, and the men of the city, a mob of worthless fellows, knock on the door. And they scream, bring out the man who came into your house, that we might know him, that we might have sex with him. And the man of Ephraim pleads with him, no, 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 not the man. But then he offers his own virgin daughter and the concubine. And finally, the Levite tosses out his concubine to these wolves of men, and she's raped and abused all night long. And the Levite gets up the next morning, and she's at the threshold of the door, and he walks over her, and he tells her to get up. She realizes, he realizes she's dead. He puts her on his donkey, he makes it home, he dismembers her into 12 pieces and sends them to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is horrible. This is the pervasiveness of perversity, sin gone wild. So what I want to do is, is use this horror of a story that reveals the fullness of sin, right? That, that's its intent, is to hit us over the head like a sledgehammer so that we see the true face of sin. I, I want us to look at what sin is. Here's the first thing about sin, is that sin is personal spiritual corruption. Here we see the unraveling of humanity, the corruption of God's image, the corruption of what God created in the beginning to be very good. And we see it in every character of the story. The Levite takes a concubine, a second wife, we know polygamy breaks the heart of God. This is not God's intent. And then the concubine is unfaithful. 
but it doesn't really seem to bother the Levite till four months pass. And then they come to this Israelite city of Gibeah and there's no hospitality. God created us in the beginning to be a loving community, to love one another. And we see here that humanity is corrupted, that they lack the care for the sojourner. They lack care for their neighbor in need in their midst. And then the man of Ephraim takes them in and he might've been hospitable, but when the mob comes, he's willing to give away his virgin daughter to these vile men. And then the Levite gives away his concubine in order to protect himself. And somehow the Levite is able to sleep soundly through the night. And he arouses the next morning and his first thought is not about his concubine, it's about himself. He opens the door and he sees her lying on the threshold, which is a troubling picture. And he steps over her and he speaks to her like a dog. Get up. How could he walk right over her and speak to her like this? This supposed man of God is callous, self-absorbed, and inhumane. Then he goes and he cuts her into 12 bloody pieces and sends her parts to the 12 tribes because he's outraged at what they did to him. He's not outraged on her behalf. He's very angry at their sin, but has no remorse over his own sin, no conscience around his own sin. Do you see what sin does? It dehumanizes us. It leads to personal corruption. Having no king but the self leads to personal self-absorption, self-protection, a lack of care for others, no hospitality, even outrage at other sins while being blind to our own sin. Now, there's so much here to point out to apply to our context today. Let me just take a little bit of time here. Take the Levite, the leader of God's people. The pastors, the church, how can there be so much scandal around God's leaders today? Specifically sexual scandal. We've been reading about it. How can the church today abuse its children? How can its leaders manipulate and hurt those under their care? Take Gibeah. How can our neighbors be in need and we look right past them? How can the sojourner and the immigrant come into our midst and we not be hospitable? How can we be so sexually driven that we view people as sexual objects for the taking? Take the man of Ephraim and the Levite. How can we throw people under the bus in order to save and protect ourselves? And then how can we be so self-righteous that we get angry at other people's sin while remaining blind to our own sins? The answer, sin. There's no one in here that is untouched by the effects of sin on our personal corruption. We are all guilty. And all of us are tempted every day to wake up like the Levite. When the alarm goes off and our eyes open and our mind begins to race and our first thoughts tend to be about ourselves, our interest, our happiness. And so we can walk over others. And we can remain blind to our own sin and we live calloused and self-absorbed. Sin is having no king. It's self-rule and doing what is right in one's own eye. Now, please listen. Sin can be as grave as Gibeah 
Or it can be like the self-righteous Pharisee in Luke 18 who looked around and compared himself to others and prayed, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. Sin is the corruption of our own personal spirituality. The second thing we see about sin is that it is social corruption. Sin leads to social chaos. I mean, the Levite takes a concubine, a second-class wife, a possession for sexual desire. The man of Ephraim offers his own virgin daughter to the mob, right, when they're asking the Levite for his, uh, for, for asking for the Levite himself. And these two men view women as property to be used for their own desire. That's how they're viewing these women, the concubine and uh, his uh, virgin daughter. I don't know if you caught that the, the, the mob comes, they knock on the door, and they're asking for a man. They're asking for the Levite. They want to have sex with him, and these men offer to women. This was an oppressive culture to women. Women were dishonored. Women were viewed as inferior. They were viewed as property. So to counter what many might say, the Bible is not patriarchal. In the beginning, God created man and woman equally in his image, both man and woman, equal value, both display the glory of God. Sin distorts what God created in the beginning to be good. Sin rots the fabric of society. And all injustices that oppress the image of God break the heart of God. The passage ends in verse 30, and all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened. Or being seen from that day, the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak about it. It says God's voice loud and clear. We can imagine God's eyes filled with tears and his chest filled with rage and him yelling, this is not the way it should be. This is not the way I designed it to be. Sexual injustice is really clear in our passage. So I have to address it specifically and briefly. I'm borrowing this from a friend and a counselor. Here's the first thing that I've got to say. Sexual violence toward women and toward men is not uncommon. I know many of you have been affected by this gross injustice. And I have to say that I really want you to know and to believe that God hates it. And God sees it. And the second thing is it's not your fault. Someone took power from you. Someone dehumanized you. The third thing is that some of your horrors and stories may not be as severe as this story, but you need to hear that God sees and he cares about your story. He cares about every part of your life. And fourth, I know this might be difficult to believe at times, but God cares about you. Please don't believe the lie that because something like this happened to you, God must not love you. I have no idea why God didn't stop it, but I, knew that, I know that God is doing something about it and will do something about it. Now, I have to add here that trauma to this end I know is deep and it's painful, and I don't think that a sermon suffices. So I have to encourage you. This has been inflicted upon you to go see a counselor, Go, go deal with this in a, in a healing way. We have money set aside in our budget specifically to help with counseling needs. We would love to give money away 
so that God could bring healing to these areas of your life. So sin is personal spiritual corruption. It's social corruption. And last, it is cultural corruption. It is cultural. We've, we've mentioned multiple times in this series that, that Israel has assimilated into pagan culture. They look just like the culture. In Judges 19, it is Israel's sin on display, not the Canaanites. What is happening is not happening in the wilderness. It's not happening in some Canaanite city. It's happening in Israel with the people of God. Did you notice that none of the characters in the story are named? It's just the Levite, the concubine, the father, the vile men. The reason is that the author's intent is to convey that these represent Israel. The Levite represents the Levites in Israel. The father represents the fathers in Israel. These men represent the men in Israel. Israel's culture is corrupt. You gotta, you gotta hear this, then and now, the greatest threat that has ever faced God's people and will ever face God's people are not people outside, but people within. The greatest threat to the church is the church itself. Nothing harms the cause of Christ more than half-hearted disciples with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. The greatest danger that the church could live with is that the church lives like there is no king and everyone's doing what is right in their own eye. So one of the greatest questions a church can ask itself, are we an alternative community to the world? Is there clearly a king who is ruling and are we a people who live to do what is right in his eyes? Judges 19, it's a sledgehammer over our heads to reveal that sin is our problem. And the answer to this problem comes to us in another horrific story. This time in the New Testament, where God the Father sent his own son to take on flesh and the perfect image of God becomes humane. And he was given over to a mob to be beaten, mocked, and crucified. The Father saw the true face of sin and its corruption personally, socially, and culturally, and he hated it so much that he sent his only son. And the son was willing to follow the way of his father, and he perfectly did what was right in his father's eyes. Jesus, the Savior King, came and he died and he rose and he will come again so that he might renew, remake, restore all that is corrupted by sin, personally, socially, and culturally. This is how we articulate our mission here at Christ Central, to see God glorified and our city flourish as we seek God's renewal spiritually, socially, and culturally. King Jesus is about binding up all the brokenness caused by sin. And Jesus is doing this, and one day, someday, it will be complete. You see, as Christians, we believe this world is not all that there is. I know that sounds crazy to claim in our secular world, but we really believe as Christians that earth has no sorrow, that heaven can't heal. Revelation 21 gives us a picture of what our Savior King will do. Revelation 21 verse 5 says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus speaking says, write this down. You can count on it. 
I'm making everything new. All the horrors of this life will be destroyed. They'll be cast out, not just out of his presence, but out of our presence. And then Revelation 21 verse 8 says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, which is to say justice is coming. Justice is coming, and that is good news, that all that is evil, all that encourages evil, all that supports evil, all that enacts evil, all that ignores evil will be done away with. All that hurts us will be destroyed. But not only that, all the horrors of our life will be healed. Verse 3 of Revelation 21, he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. The book of Judges is about people living with no king, doing what is right in their own eyes. The promise of the gospel and the hope of Christianity is that King Jesus will dwell with us. And not only that, but in the city of Jebus, which is Jerusalem, which they feared in Judges 19, but it will become the new Jerusalem, a city where God dwells with his people and we with him. And when we trust our king and when we follow his rule and we seek to do what is right in his eyes, we, the church, the people of God, will have our very lives transformed. And we will see other people's lives transformed. We will be a people that that are set on seeking justice and mercy for all who are made in God's image. We will be a people who love our neighbors extravagantly. We will be a people that is counterculture. Countercultural, a city on a hill that shines brightly with the presence of King Jesus in our midst as we worship him and walk with him. So two big questions to end with. A question for you and a question for us as a church. Is Jesus your king? Do you know that his rule and his reign is good and loving? Will you surrender your whole life to trust him and to follow him? And secondly, Christ Central Church, are we a people? Are we a community where people enter into our our midst and they say, surely there is a king among them? Surely there is a God because I've experienced him in their midst. May you know the joy of following King Jesus. And I pray that it will be said of us as a church, as people enter our community, that they have said, surely there is a king. Surely there is a God because I experienced him in their midst. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you King Jesus, save, that you redeem and you restore all that is broken. Lord, that is good news for us personally because all of our lives are impacted by sin and left unto our own, we cannot save ourselves. So thank you that you save us. Lord, give us the grace to cry out, to believe, to be convicted and to turn and to see your loving arms extended to us. Lord, Help us to to cry out, King Jesus, come and and renew all that's broken in our society. Lord, all all the injustices that are are very clear and very evident. Lord, we thank you that your kingdom is one of justice and 
we pray that, that you would bring that justice to bear here on earth as it is in heaven. And God, prevent us being a church that just assimilates to the world. Help us to be an alternative community. Help us to be a community where the rule and the reign of King Jesus is experienced. And by your grace and by your love, we are propelled and compelled to live by doing what is right in your eyes. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.